0: Hello, 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 and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills that you need to take your career to the next level. We do this by listening to the stories, the lessons learned, and the trauma of the current industry leaders. My name is Felipe Flores, I am your host. I hope you're having a wonderful week It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for listening. Today, we're speaking with Tony Grubner. He is the general manager of analytics, insights, and modeling at sportsbet.com.au. Tony has had a fascinating career with a blend of analytical roles and commercial roles, and also a stint as an entrepreneur for a few years. So very rich experience. He tells us about his journey, his lessons, and how he got to where he is. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, this is Felipe. Today, I'm sitting down with Tony. Tony, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, Great to have you on the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: At the beginning of the interviews, I always like to ask guests about how they got started in data and their professional background or the journey that they've had so far. What did that journey look like for you?
1: My story is sort of a bit of a long-winded, sort of uh, long and winding sort of story that goes through a few sort of points as to how I got here. I mean essentially I think it probably starts all the way back to my last sort of years of playing up actually failing maths at school. So I'm sure that my uh, wow. my master very much laugh um the fact that I've um I've ended up in such a sort of maths type, uh, <laughs> type. Okay. so i was outside of failing maths. i was pretty i was decent at school i studied at university i studied uh management and e-commerce and this is in the stage where I mean, this is before google was even invented or uh, facebook didn't exist so e-commerce was a little bit of a redundant thing to study and then management was great but no one was going to really hire you as a uh, as a manager straight out of school so i yeah. took a um sales apprenticeship role with a commercial with a consumer electronics company after a couple of years of realized that um, I was uh, actually horrible at sales. I think that the business probably had worked that out by that stage as well. So I remember getting put onto this job where we'd just taken this contract to be the uh, supplier of batteries, uh, consumer batteries, AA batteries and whatever, for about 250 different um, supermarkets around. I was living in New Zealand at the time. And what they needed was they needed someone to draw 250 planograms. So a planogram is basically saying this is where you should position each of the batteries in each of the shops. So they wanted someone to draw 250 planograms and send them out to the merchandisers. I got to about number three or four and then realized this is ridiculous. And there's quite a science behind how you build these planograms, but this was a ridiculous task. So I ended up um, taking my sort of limited Excel knowledge and and taught myself sort of Visual Basic, and I automated the whole task. This is before I even knew things like data science or anything existed. And I made the whole task where I created this application I and mean, it was a pretty low-level application built in Excel but an application nonetheless that took into account sort of the size of the planograms and the size of the area and took into account the commercial sales in the in the region and it was, it was a little bit of a model that went in behind it. I probably didn't even know I was creating a model and that was used so that we could essentially, whenever we wanted to, we could create a new planogram automatically and send that out. So it saved me having to draw out 250 different planograms. Huh. That's when I started to realise that I sort of liked that type of work, and and I had a skill for taking. Uh, my technical skills were never that great, but I had a skill for taking things and automating them, and understanding how numbers worked and putting them together. My next role, I decided to move. I got out of the sales, <laughs> the sales business. I moved to Dublin. I took the day I arrived in Dublin, I got off the plane and I get found this place to get an interview. They were looking, it was a property company, and this is 2007, so right in the heart of the Celtic tiger. The Dublin economy was going crazy. And I got this interview with a uh, property company. So this was a massive property company that owned owned a number of different properties. They had no systems as to how they managed all these properties and understood how many properties, they didn't even know actually how many properties they actually had, let alone what was the status of all the properties and what was all the information. So they wanted someone to manually put all this into Excel spreadsheets and it was an eight week engagement. And so after I looked at that for a couple of days, I then went Well, this is without knowing anything really about databases or anything at the time. I said, this is a job to actually create a massive database and um, something that the team can access and as they need. So I didn't know how to do this at the time, but I pitched this to them and uh, they said, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Can you do that for the next 12 months? So I turned an eight-week engagement into 12 months. Did that, And then by by the time I got to this stage, I realized that this was probably where some of my skills lay around sort of the more analytical database uh, type stuff. I then decided to move over to London. And so now by this time, we've got past the sort of booming economy and now we're straight into the sort of GFC. And oh. getting a job was absolutely impossible. Getting an interview for a job was impossible. Even finding a job that was um, advertised was impossible. So I, what I was I I wanted to double back on my e-commerce skills. So what I did was I actually started from the couch of one of my friend's houses that was letting me sort of stay there for free. I started a website that sold, of all things, dog beds. So beds for dogs, um, which About the only reason I chose that was because um, I found a supplier that was able to supply, but I wanted to understand more about digital and I wanted to understand more about um, selling stuff online and understand that whole um, world, which um, I'd obviously had an interest in, but it had moved a long way since I studied it back at school. And part of that, I got really Quite heavily into digital marketing and um, pay-per-click advertising, etc. And I actually ended up writing a few sort of once again still quite basic, but in Excel, but a few algorithms and tools that actually significantly enhanced my ability to run my pay-per-click campaigns and to bid on um, keywords. As part of that, I actually got picked up by a. One of the search marketing um, agencies, one of the large search marketing agencies in London, they found out some of the stuff that I was doing and they wanted me to bring that into them. I ended up selling the website that I created, which I didn't sell for that much, but I sell for a profit at least. It definitely wasn't enough that I was able to retire. I then worked for the agency. And then by that stage, I I was fully sort of in this world where I was much more understanding that my skill set was more sort of in the analytical and how you bring that directly to the customer and build tools that help to serve that and and applications that are useful. And so after all that, I ended up coming to, I didn't go all the way back to New Zealand. I went to Australia in Melbourne, and that's where I am now. And I ended up getting a role as an analyst at Sportsbet, which is once again where where I'm at now. Um, this was about seven or eight years ago, uh, and at the time, Sportsbet had about 200 employees. I ended up getting a call from a recruiter that basically said, "Do you want to do work on um, analytics in a company that does sports and is heavily digital?" And I said, "All those three things tick the box." Oh. So I took the role at Sportsbet. It was very much a sort of entry level analyst role, but at the time there was wasn't really many analysts there. That has has grown over time, and grown, the size of the business has grown substantially, almost probably from about 200 people to about 800 people now. And um, over time, the need for analytics has grown. So I've been able to grow some um, analytics teams. And at the moment, I, I look after the data products team here in terms of that we look after all the data science and advanced analytics and sports modeling that we do. It's been an interesting journey. Like I said, it wasn't probably the um, sort of typical journey into into data and analytics. And I come at it from a slightly different background. But I think one thing to note is that, yeah, I think, Everyone that's sort of worked here in data analytics and myself included has a slightly different journey as to how we got there. And there's no one path that always works.
0: That's one of the things that I really enjoy about having these conversations that everyone has had such a a unique and different path. And it definitely sets you up, I guess, on one part, you have to be very passionate and very driven to sort of keep improving and growing your skill sets in an area that there hadn't been a pathway in front of you that was clear. But the other side is that your origins give you a different sort of advantage and different focusing capabilities that you bring out in your uh, later career, such as now. And in your case, would you say that your origins, or your maybe your first specialisation, would you put that as marketing or e-commerce as your the first one in your mind?
1: Yeah, my skills probably. I'm definitely not a technical analyst, or, or come at it from the technology side. Um, I've obviously had to learn a lot more of that, especially in my current role. Or even as I wouldn't even call it necessarily from the data science side. My skills come from I think I understand the coming from the more commercial side is that I understand that and having a sort of numerical. An understanding of numbers, I'd say, which is obviously not a very academic understanding to the point of uh, failing maths in my last year of school, but a numerical understanding of what analytics can actually bring to end customers and what can actually bring to a business. I think that's where my skills lie. I'm definitely not the um, far from the most technical analyst in the world, or and I've got a team of data scientists all who you know significantly more about data science and about about doing cool things with numbers than I do. I think my my ability is to package all that up and actually deliver it. And give some commercial sort of acumen to it.
0: Very, very interesting. And how has that strength played in your career? What things did that enable you to do early on? And what have you seen as the benefits of of having that as your strength or focus?
1: I think one of the main strengths is that I mean, to the point that when the examples I was giving before about some of the stuff that I did, like I kept on reiterating, they weren't heavily technical The models or the, I mean, most of what I spoke about at that stage was built sort of in Excel or, or Access using sort of Visual Basic. What they were, were applications that were built with a good commercial understanding of what they were trying to achieve. So, therefore, while the tools might have been primitive or the, um, the application themselves might have been relatively primitive, they were very targeted in terms of what they were trying to do and what they were able to achieve. And I think that's always probably put me in a good place moving forward in my career. And now when I think about things like, especially my observation is in the whole sort of data science world is one of the challenges with data scientists, with data science as a a concept or advanced analytics or you want to call it, is there's a lot of strong practitioners um, that can do a lot of great work in this space. But actually creating that link between the commercial thinkers of the business and people that actually understand and take things directly to customers, creating that link between the data science and then the actual practical application of the data science is not always apparent. I mean, one of the things that we try to do quite a bit at SportsBit is to try get obviously our data scientists to understand that link more, but also get our commercial people and our business to understand that link more, so they can work better with our data science teams. And so I think one area that I've been able to add value is that I can create that link. It is a little point of uniqueness that I sort of have going and uh, going my way.
0: Definitely, a very, very interesting and very good point of uniqueness. Uh, what are the things that you have to help with on the two sides that you're able to connect for the data scientists? What are the and the data people? What type of things do you need to bring to life and help them consider in their work? And then um, same for the business and the commercial people that you're trying to bring in closer to data science.
1: I think um, helping the data science teams understand more what's valuable. So. And you do get data scientists that send understand this link quite well, but um, ultimately data scientists' main strength are creating the models. I think you need either someone within the data science team or you need someone that's able to tell them, well, what data kind of models do we need? Or it's just, it's not so much what kind of models do we need, it's more what kind of problems do we actually need to solve? And that is a commercial question, not a data science question. Once you understand what kind of problems you want to solve, then someone that can actually start the conversation around, well, this is how we can numerically solve these problems, or this is how we can mathematically do it, how we can start to think about it from a modeling point of view. My job probably stops a little bit there in terms of once we've worked out what kind of models we need to create and based on the problems that we're trying to solve, essentially it's people that are a lot smarter than I am. It's their job to actually bring those things to life and to make them happen. But I'm very much focused on the why and a little bit into the what. And then the data science scheme can focus a little bit more on the how. That's
0: really good. And when you're, when you're faced with a, a long list of essentially of potential problems that could be solved through data science in the business. How do you start to prioritize and pick where to put the efforts of the team, where to concentrate on?
1: It's a good challenge. I mean, I know it's the way at sports, been I'm sure it's the way at many other organizations as well that Especially with data science being relatively new, there's literally thousands of things that data science can potentially tackle and thousands of things the business either wants to do better or or things that the business currently doesn't do that data science would enable them to do. So we need to start putting frames around these things as to what the commercial benefit of each of them actually are. Ultimately, everything comes down to a commercial use case in terms of how much money it's going to make. I think at Sportsbet, we're very focused on the customer and it helps simplify a lot of that. So a lot of it for us is what's going to actually improve the customer experience. That's sort of the barometer as to how we look into these things and how we prioritize these things. But it's a challenge because with any data science model, I mean, some things that you try to do are just really hard. And you have no idea how long some of these things are going to take. And sometimes you don't know if you're going to actually be able to do them at all. As I say to my guys quite often, if you're not making mistakes, then you're actually probably not pushing the envelope hard enough, especially in the space. Yes. That that most of what you do is ambitious and Most of the data scientists, when they start doing it, they probably don't actually know how they're going to do it. They have to actually, as they work through things, they're going to actually have to work through a lot of these problems and work out how they're going to do something. That's a cool space to be working in, but it's a challenging space to be working in as well. It's a challenging space to manage and to organize and to ensure that your team is continuing to deliver results. That's exactly
0: right. That's really good. Really, really good, actually. And did you have to provide um, almost like any education internally? To help people understand, obviously, people outside of the data science team, to help people understand that sometimes the problems will take a long time to be solved and that sometimes they can't be fully solved or it might be a partial solution. Obviously, a lot of uh, people have uh, difficulties explaining and getting people on board the ambiguity around the, the process of data science and the, and the length of time that it may take to solve something. What have been your, your
1: learnings on that space? Yeah, I think something that we've worked on quite a lot, especially in the last, let's say, six months, is around how we communicate ideas. How, many, how Sorry, not, it's not so much ideas, but how, how we communicate the pieces of work that we're working on, how we do that constantly back to stakeholders and customers, but also how we just communicate how data science works as well and delivering things like making people understand the modeling life cycle. So one of the things that we did, which um, worked really well for us, was we actually painted out, this is what the modeling life cycle actually looked like. And we presented this to a lot of people. Um, the feedback that I got from that was that people understood exactly that that tool or that artifact helped them to understand the process and understand where the difficulties lie in the process a lot more. And then in terms of the communicating back constantly, that's that's something that has always been a challenge. I mean, if you're embarking on a project that may take six months, may take 12 months, if you're embarking on those projects, you need to, bite, um, to cut them up into bite-sized chunks so that you can constantly be communicating on them. I think one of the mistakes we probably made when we started doing data science seriously at Sportsbet was that we took away those projects and then we, uh, I saw this quite frequently, was that Someone would take away their sort of talk to the stakeholders at the start of the project, get their feedback, get their requirements, then start building the model, and then set a um, set a meeting for six months time after they've done all this work and modeling, and then they present it back to the stakeholders. And the stakeholders would go, yeah, "That's not really what we're wanting." And therefore, work was um, sort of as debatable as to where we got to in six months' worth of work. Something that we've tried to really address is how do you how do you put these things into bite-sized chunks? How do you get people? Understanding what the progress of things are, what the direction of things are. So we with the concept of product owners for models. So we'll have actually a um, commercial person or a subject matter expert who is outside of the data science team who can actually work directly with the modeler, the data scientist, to help steer and but also just to help understand what progress is being made and where where it's being made, so that we avoid that conversation six months down the line where people say that's not exactly quite what we wanted. That's great. This relates to, to something that you
0: said before around bringing the people outside of the data science team, getting them to understand data science and how it works and being able to work better with the team. What are the, some of the steps that you've taken in, in that area and getting helping people get started like that? I ask because there's a lot of people that are obviously facing that problem and, and wanting to increase the data literacy in their organization. What are some ways that you've tackled
1: that problem? Yeah, so it's an ongoing thing that we're trying to tackle. I think my message, so I work quite closely with our our product management team here, for example. I think this is definitely the case for a business like Sportsbet, which is very digital, very numerically focused. We sell a digital product. Essentially, the the product manager's role over the next couple of years will change so that they have to actually know, um, understand how they can utilize advanced analytics in their their product. And we've already seen a number of examples of that. So it's not really a negotiable that some of the commercial owners actually understand this better. And that's that's true of product management. It's true of of other areas as well. As the modeling becomes more and more sort of critical to what we do, I mean, at the moment, probably about 30 or 40% of our homepage of our app, which is pretty much our most valuable piece of real estate that we own, is pretty much run by models. So in order to understand what we do or understand how our business runs, you sort of have to understand the modeling that goes in behind it. One of the key sort of areas that I talk to people about in the space understand how the model works necessarily or how to do a model or how to create a model. but you do need to understand the why and the what you need to understand why the model's being um is needed and you need to understand what problems are being solved back to the point i was making before and like i said that's actually not so much those questions aren't so much data science questions they're actually commercial questions so if you get people thinking like that as the model, as complex as the model is, and to some people, probably myself included, some of the work that the data science team does, especially once you can't start to get down the artificial intelligence world, to some people that's incredibly confusing, but that doesn't mean that they can't understand and comprehend the reasons or the outputs of what those models are producing. And if they can understand that, then they can make better decisions and they can um, ensure that their products are utilizing some of this emerging technology and these emerging thoughts. One of the other things that we've tried to do is... Try where possible to bring the models to life. It's been a good chunk of the last sort of 12 to 18 months trying to explain to people a lot of these models through PowerPoint presentations, et cetera, and a lot of diagrams of a lot of things. But like a really good example, which works really well recently. So, we have uh, a recommendation model, which is, which is recommending that events that a customer may want to bet on a specific point of time. And how we do that is like how a lot of people do their recommendation systems is through a fundamentally a lookalike model and the lookalike model then. Once we assume which customers are similar to other customers, we then assume that whatever those customers are betting on at a time is what the other customers want to bet on it at a particular point yeah. of time. To explain this, one of the things that we did was um, we got people into sessions where they came in and we got people to we put this into a music analogy. So we got people to give ratings out of 10 on a number of different popular songs. We did this in real time with a uh, sort of mobile survey. And then once using that information that came back from people, we were then able to run a model in real time. And then we were able to say, okay, these are the people in the room that have the most similar music taste to you. And um, it was a really good example where people came up to me after those sessions and said, I get it now. Like you have sort of made it more real. In terms of, I now understand you've you've shown me in a sort of real world example and brought it to life. So that was a really good example that worked for us, but it still remains a work in progress. And um, like I say, um, I think the next sort of horizon for data science is very much around data scientists can't just be people over in the corner doing cool stuff over there. Really have to be integral and in the middle of what's being done in the business, especially a business like Sportsbeat.
0: What a brilliant way to bring the example to life. I love that. It's such a great idea. And as you've been growing the team within a quickly growing organization, there must be a lot of challenges in growing the team and structuring the team. What are some of the things that you've had to overcome in that space?
1: Fundamentally, there's obviously a in the space of battle for talent. There's a lot of businesses that are trying to ramp up there their data science capability and their advanced analytics capability and there's not a huge amount of supply out there at this stage there's a lot of people out there but relative to the amount of demand the supply and demand in the space is a little bit out of whack so we need to make sure that we can get the best talent because it's obviously a space where you need really smart people and you need the people that are really going to be able to move the dial in the space so we need to make sure we get the right talent by having cool proposition for them and cool cool stuff for them to work on and I think we have that at Sportsfield we're fortunate in terms of, as I mentioned before, we're a fully digital business where we sell a digital product. It's pretty much nothing that um, our customers can do or that happens in our business that isn't tracked in some form or in some way in data. And so we're very lucky in terms of we're swimming in data and also the uses of that data or the use cases for what we can do in this space are huge. And so we're very fortunate. It helps us to get talent probably probably keep talent as well in terms of getting working on some cool projects. It's definitely a battle in terms of making sure that you get the right talent and then also making sure that you can keep that talent on board. Because a lot of people we get as well, uh, we generally get people a little bit more junior or not so much that. But a lot of the stuff that we're trying to do, probably, probably especially in the Australian market, is quite ambitious and there's not many businesses that are probably doing it. And so there's very few sort of places that we can go to and say, have you done this before? And so we're getting people and we're training them up. A lot of their training just happens on the job where they, they're just cutting their teeth on, on cool projects. We need to make sure that once they've got those skills, then we can keep and utilize those skills. So very mindful of that. In terms of structures, I think that whatever supports and structures you can put around around, these, around data scientists, the better. The way I like to look at a data science team is that data science team is interesting in that it's got its uh, downstream stakeholders and its upstream stakeholders. So the downstream stakeholders, the data solutions teams or the data engineers, the people that both supply the data that the teams work on, but also the, the teams that deploy the models and push them into production. And then you've got the upstream stakeholders, what we've talked about quite a bit in terms of our, um, our commercial stakeholders and the people that are actually taking stuff directly to our customers, which puts data science team sort of bang smack in the middle of that process. With all due respect to data scientists, and I come back to the fact that you, you get a team of people that are fantastic at creating models, data scientists aren't always, as a generalization, the best sort of connectors or the best sort of stakeholder managers sit in the middle. So, um, Team that sits in the middle, you need to make sure that they, they have those strong links out. So, what kind of structures and support can you put around these teams? I mentioned the concept of product owners before that work into the team, we have similar sort of concepts, although different names um, from our data engineers. Plus, we also make sure that we put enablement roles like um, business analysts in with our um, data science teams as well. They're almost like the glue that can help these teams um, focus on creating the models, but also can be that making sure that they're working on the right things and can have the resources and have the data, have tools that they need when they need it.
0: That's really good. So does that mean that the structure of your department, would you have teams according to uh, specialization or capability, or is it based on the project work and sort of a, a multidisciplinary team what type of way and what way would you do you
1: normally structure that department so we do a bit of both that the sort of actual structure of the teams are much more sort of by discipline and so the people you actually report to but how we run every project is that we try and make them as cross-functional as possible and we find that that works a lot better so we've we've had a big push in the last uh, 18 months, 22 years, on personalization, it was an area that I that I led, a project that I led. One of the biggest challenges with that project was that you're essentially trying to now create a product that goes across data engineering teams, across data science teams, and across front-end delivery teams by the time it goes onto the platform. That's not to speak about the commercial owners and the product owners. So you're trying to deliver product across three very distinct groups of teams that it was definitely the case of sports. But it it's probably the case that a lot of organizations had never really worked together in the past to create things. One of our major learnings was that you can't just have those sort of handover points across those teams and expect it to all just magically happen, especially teams that were unfamiliar with each other. So the more and more we went down that the more and more we went we shaped our sort of structure of the project much towards project specific cross-functional teams that um, incorporated those sort of three areas around engineering data science and um, front-end delivery that incorporated those teams as one team within the project and that increased our throughput and increased the quality of what was coming through significantly
0: very nice And tell me, before you mentioned that a lot of the type of work that is being done in your teams is definitely different and in some ways much more advanced than what would be done in the industry in general. And that therefore, you hire people that then will learn on the job. For that reason, what type of things do you look for when you're hiring? How do you determine the potential during that interview process to see how good a a person could do in the job?
1: But one of the things that I look for, and it may be sort of typical of my background and the story that I told around how I sort of got to where I got. I really look for people that are ambitious and that people that are real sort of self-starters so I'm not looking for, and I probably prize that over a lot of other things around, um, obviously you need to have a base level technical skills that you can show and display, but ultimately I'm someone that can make something happen and looks at a problem that maybe that others might find difficult to solve. They look at that problem and go, well, I don't know how to solve it today, but I'll work it out. That's a really cool skill to have and really cool if you've got those people in your team because nothing is unsolvable in that, in that regards because you can always it can attack any problem. So real sort of self star is not the kind of person that, well, the kind of person that doesn't need to be told what to do or how to do it necessarily. They're going to try to work it out for themselves. And that doesn't mean that they're on, a, on an island trying to work it out for themselves, but they're going to really try to look at problems from a number of different angles and work with people in order to solve it just because it may not be readily, readily solvable. And I think that plays back into sort of how I got to of where I got to and like, career i mean that was that was probably my one skill was i was able to i was able to look at problems and actually look at them a different way and attack them differently and not really sort of even though i didn't have the technical skills to do a lot of the stuff i did i still tried to do it anyway and that's the kind of people that i'm looking for i always say before you can and this is true of any type of analyst or data scientist is the technical skills while they're very important the technical skills aren't what set you apart because probably there's numerous other people that has just have just as strong technical skills but what can set you apart is what you can add on top of those technical skills, and how you can turn that directly into actually solving problems and how you can actually you know, apply unique solutions to difficult problems. That's really great.
0: One of the things that really jumped out to me about your career is that you have done technical roles or t- roles that are more of a technical bent, that have more of a technical bent, and then moved to roles that have more of a commercial bent, and then back to ones with more technical bent, and then vice versa. So you've sort of had roles interweave with one another that have different focuses. And obviously, for example, one, one of those changes happened in, in your time as sports vets, going from head of analytics to customer operations as a GM, and then back to a GM of analytics and insights. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about that. those times where you went from an analytics role to a commercial role. What were some of the benefits that you gained on the commercial role by having had the analytical role
1: just before that? Yeah, so um, it's an interesting point you raise. Uh, so I did a role, as you mentioned, uh, looking after our customer operations team. So that's uh, our customer service area, our phone betting team. So um, we have a, an operation where we take bets across over the phone, and also um, some of our customer operations areas like fraud and uh, some of our other responsible gambling area as well. It was a massive eye opener for me. So it was, a, it was a role leading about 220 people, which for starters was a uh, was a big step and something that I got huge learnings from. And secondly, it was in areas that I'd never worked in before. So I, I'd never worked in customer service. I'd never worked in a lot of these areas. So it was a big step for the company to put me in that role. But in terms of what I learned, it was fantastic for me. In terms of what I was able to learn, seeing things from a whole different side of the fence and well, for starters, I think that my analytical skills, I think if you have good, broad, strong analytical skills, it actually sets you up for a number of different areas. I was actually able to bring my analytical skills into that role. And while I, I wouldn't profess to ever being a customer service expert, I was able to look at things from a probably slightly different lens. Some of the people on the team that were customer service experts or I was able to work with them on a lot of things because it's amazing how many things in business, especially a business like Sportsbet, it's very digital. It's amazing how many things come down to sort of numbers at the end of the day and maths. That actually gave me really good grounding in terms of being able to pick some of the concepts up and, and being able to actually not just concepts up, but actually uh, apply sort of different ideas and experience the areas using my analytical skills. And then I'd say that when I did that role for about 18 months, two years, and then came back and um, took on a, another analytical role. After that, I think it definitely made me a bit much better analyst in terms of having that wide sort of commercial grounding and and understanding and and being able to be on the other side of the fence as well and to be able to be closer to the customer. It made, I think it probably definitely made me a better analyst and um, hopefully it also made me a much better leader as well by the virtue of having having to look after 200 people, all sort of unique, different backgrounds. So it was a tremendous learning opportunity for me. I definitely recommend it for people who are they might be they might be analysts and see themselves as analysts. And that might be their end destination or what they want in their career. But I would definitely try to stay open towards other sort of avenues, even if those avenues are only for a short period of time, because ultimately I think those other paths might actually make you a much stronger analyst.
0: So interesting and such a great point. So if somebody was looking at moving out of a purely analytical role to more of a business role what type of things do you recommend that they look for
1: i was fortunate in this regard it sort of just happened and uh it probably wasn't so much my intention it sort of happened for me i think one thing that people can do and maybe this is why it sort of happened for me was that yeah. even if are an analyst or a data scientist or whatever you call yourself, I think you've always got to to see yourself as someone who is not just crunching numbers, but someone who is actually working for a much, I don't want to say a higher purpose, but um, they're much more looking at the end result of what those numbers are actually driving Mm -hmm. and what that analyst is actually driving. So if you're looking much more, not just for an analyst, it's not just about giving the numbers and, and some recommendations to a team, it's actually trying to work out, well, what are those numbers actually, what are the decisions that are actually being made from these numbers that I'm actually pushing through, and getting much closer to the commercial teams and that will make you a stronger analyst and i think every analyst should be doing that regardless of if they're trying to get a role in a commercial team or not or they're trying to specify their their career that's ultimately what an analyst should be doing and by doing that i think you then put yourself in a position where you essentially are ready to it is an option for you to then move into some of those commercial roles and to and to apply the your analytical skills in a slightly different sort of uh, in a slightly different way
0: yeah that's fantastic And I do think that into the future, we will have more people that have experiences and cases like yours where somebody with strong analytical skills in there and other analytical experience will, people like that will go into more commercial roles and, and vice versa. And, and I would love to see those leaders come up through the ranks in, in very similar ways to what you have done. And ideally, not only in business, but you know, in government and not-for-profit. It's something that I personally would love to see. And that's why I'm so excited that, <laughs> that you have done that uh, already. So it's fantastic.
1: <laughs> it's a um, it's a challenge though, because like, I've spoken a lot about sort of, that's one side of the fence in terms of, and I've spoken about myself personally being much of a sort of all round of a jack of all trades, master of none, and that that in itself is a skill, and it actually I think is a is a very very useful skill. Or I hope it is at least in terms of being able to try and um, to see things through this sort of whole process and to see much of the, more of the bigger picture. The flip side of that is you still need, and and especially in the data science um, space, and as things become more and more complicated, you need people to be able to go deep on things as well. So I think we're going to get into this little bit of an economy where businesses, people are either going to go down one path or the other. They're either going to go down that all-rounder path, which is very valuable to have, or they're going to go down that sort of deep, deep path where they actually become um, very sort of narrow sort of specialists, which might be narrow, but it's a hugely valuable skill. And that's got its own value as well. And I think that's where... I don't want to say that and if anyone's listening on this call thinking I have to choose which one I'm going to be, that's not how I want people to to react to that statement. But I do think that we're getting into this world. That's where the value is around having people that are all-rounders and then having people that can go deep and can understand things to the nth degree. Obviously, my my skill wasn't set towards the deep. It was pretty much uh, always set towards the all-rounder. But I think that there's definitely value for both of those areas. It's true, at least in the Australian
0: landscape. SportsBet is one of the companies that's leading in terms of as a digital company and in the use of data and the scale as well. So it would be natural that you would see that the need for that deep visualization before a lot of other companies that are you know trying to get to that point. And I know, for example, people that work at Facebook and sometimes there's a team of data scientists that for over a year, the only work that they do is to try and improve a single model. And you know, and day in, day out, week in, week out, they're hacking away at trying to improve a single model that is in place and seeing how they can make the accuracy and the predictions better. And that's in line with that deep specialization that, that you were talking about. But as, at least as Australia is maturing in this space, there is, at least at the moment, there's also the need for that generalist uh, skill set quite a lot. And I can totally see how in the future it is going to that start difference between the two types will become more and more
1: prominent yeah fascinating to hear about people spending all that time on one model i mean i have heard similar sort of stories about out of netflix as well and about how important their uh, their recommender models are and, and how much people spend time just trying to get sort of the inch degree out of those models it's fascinating
0: definitely true. And tell me for yourself, what type of things are you thinking about at the moment? What's captured your curiosity or what type of things are you are you trying to solve? What are you spending your, your mind share on recently?
1: So a couple of things. Firstly for us, and this is uh, specific to us, uh, is uh, global. So we, um, Sportsbit is part of a larger sort of group that involves Paddy Power and Betfair over in Dublin in the UK, or sorry, Ireland in the UK. And we also have a, um, with recent sort of changes to uh, betting laws in the, in the US, we have a business called Fanjel, we acquired a business late last year um, called Fanjel, which is ramping up extremely quickly um, in a fast-growing, um, in a very fast-growing uh, sort of uh, area. And so, what we're trying to do, and um, I'm taking the lead on this the business at the moment, is around. How do we get that sort of global scale and how do we increase our global talent pool and how do we make sure that we aren't just all data science teams that are operating at our own sort of pace and our own vacuum? How do we actually... Realize some synergies and gain leverage from the fact that we do have that global capability, which is easier said than done. I mean, we all have different sort of data structures and data platforms and legacy systems. We have non-complementary time zones. And so we're at the sort of early stages in global and, and, and really starting to understand why it's so difficult, but that's very much. That's very much on my mind. I think for me as well, uh, one thing that's, that's on my mind that's sort of ticking away very much for the sports bit is how do we start to get to a world where we're doing what I would call sort of real, I would say, um, and excuse my terminologies for, for this for a second, but I would say that most of our sort of models at the moment, we have some really cool models that we're doing some really cool things, but most of them are what I would call sort of linear sort of machine learning models. Uh, how do we then... They starting to become a few more use cases that are apparent to us. They start to go down a route of where we actually need artificial intelligence to solve the problem. And not just uh, not just if then statements or more linear models. We've actually got the the machines that are actually driving the conclusions. You're not necessarily telling the machines or prescribing to the machines as much as to how to solve some of these problems. As so that's interesting because it's uh, probably haven't had those use cases on our radar for a while, but there's starting to be some some interesting use cases that come in.
0: Yeah, that's really good. So by that do you mean moving from kind of like Supervised learning methods where you might give the input data and the answer and get the model to extract the rules out of that. And moving towards something like reinforcement learning, where you have sort of rewards for the algorithm and it has to work out what are good actions to take on its own.
1: Yes, exactly. You've, you've just explained it better than I did there.
0: No, 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 no. That's really good. And uh, obviously, only if you're able to share. But uh, what are some of the things that you're looking more to trying to solve through artificial intelligence methods?
1: There's a couple of areas in terms of some of the models that we currently have. So, a lot of our models are put into two categories. One category is models that improve the customer experience directly. And most of those are personalization models, of which the recommender model that I spoke briefly about is one of those. And I think that um, our recommender model is, is a real challenge because, uh, the model for a second, they compare it to the, the Netflix recommender model, whereas they're, they're trying to recommend a movie to someone that movie is going to always, or movie or TV program, it's always going to be there for the next sort of three to four years at least. We're literally trying to recommend someone a horse race that literally has a five or ten minute bidding window Mm. that people bet, And all of a sudden, once that race starts, it's, it's finished in terms of it's no longer on the site anymore. And we have this very, very highly seasonal sort of, where customers may have their own personal preferences, which is obviously a very key part to personalization in terms of what sports they like to bet on. But what really overrides that sometimes is the seasonality. So to use an example, like an international example, a customer may love to bet on the NBA, but if they're coming in August when there is no NBA on, then they're obviously not there to bet on NBA. So it's been a real challenge with our recommender models. And I think there's a part that some more sort of artificial intelligence can play or re- reinforcement learning or deep learning that can actually come in to, to enhance some of those models and can give better recommendations directly to our customers. Well, another major area that we focus on is broadly sort of termed our sports models. So for what our sports models are, are they models that create prices in terms of what customers mm-hmm. or events. So to give you an example, for an NBA game, one NBA game, we we have about four or five hundred different markets that a customer could bet on. So everything from who's going to win the game, all the way down to how many points X player is going to get, or even how many assists or rebounds uh, the player is going to get. And so those are all running through uh, models, and we don't have humans that are pricing up all those so all those markets. Unfortunately, that that would be impossible. So we have models that do that. There is the ability to take that. Uh, further to utilize artificial intelligence to improve those models even further and we have we have a product called uh, same game multi and i'll briefly just explain to you what a same game multi is and, and why the modeling behind it is, is so called cool. betting 101 first so a, a multi-bet for those that aren't aware a multi-bet is essentially where i can take two different bets and i can combine them together and the outcome of that you times those together and that you shift price um, so Let's just say that I had two outcomes that were both 50% chance of happening. our times in together and for both of them to happen, it's a 25% chance of them, for them to happen. It's a very popular product because customer get, the customer gets um, higher prices and a bit more excitement with their bet as well. The problem with that is that only works for events that are dependent on, uh, independent of each other. So for example, I, in the same game, do the same calculations. I couldn't say... Golden State Warriors to win the game and also Steph Curry who plays for the Golden State Warriors to score X amount of points because those events aren't independent from each other. But what we've created, we've created a model that can actually price those events and can actually price the accumulation of dependent events. And that's based at the moment on heavy sort of simulation modelling. We were the first. We created this model, I think we released the first one probably about two and a half years ago. And um, we we were the first business to create this product for our customers and our customers love this product and since then pretty much all our competitors have have followed pretty quickly but we want to stay ahead in that game in the same go multi sort of um space so um putting more and more markets into into things and the complexity of what we want to do and at at once at some point in time it's going to get complex enough that we're going to actually need to sort of go to a new sort of dimension of and that would be towards artificial intelligence and then there's other things we've got like a register or a list of things that we want to consider in terms of a list of about 20 or 30 items that we think that we could attack with some artificial intelligence, some things, like some, some basic sort of either text analysis or, um, I shouldn't say basic, but um, some text analysis or some sort of image detection work or um, even video detection work um, that can help improve our customers as well. And once you get into obviously image detection or video video identification, then you really need to start to get down a world where you're doing much more AI than sort of the linear linear models. That sort of sums up um, some of my thinking in that space. That's fantastic.
0: And tell me, what excites you about this
1: field? I haven't really thought about it. I think it's just intrinsic in terms of I have a sort of um, and probably quite a geeky passion towards using numbers in order to get to an outcome. And especially in, in what I do today with uh, sports bet. I mean, I, I was always, um, while I might have failed maths at school, I was always big on sort of sports statistics and being a massive sports fan. And I, I, I went very heavily into the sort of numbers um, side of sports. Always been passionate for the way you were able to break up something that's so complex like sports, and you were able to put numbers around it and to um, to make sense of it through ultimately. And I probably didn't think of it this way at the time, but ultimately through math, and you're able to improve things. So things like the Moneyball examples, for those that are familiar with either the Moneyball movie or probably more importantly the book that Michael Lewis wrote around Moneyball, in terms of the way that teams are using sports analytics to improve their on-field the way they play the games on field and the way that they choose their teams and all those sort of advantages, I think that's fascinating how you can utilize numbers in order to make things happen in the real world. I just apply that to what I what I do day to day. I think there's definitely I do find it fascinating how you can make improvements through breaking mm-hmm. things down into sort of numerical or mathematical concepts.
0: Fantastic. I've got a, a tough one for you which is how has a failure or an apparent failure at the time helped you in your career further down the line? One
1: of the things I can think of actually relates to something I was talking about before was um, when we first started to do personalization at Sportsbed. I mentioned that we've started that probably about two years ago. We first created a model which was based on customer preference. thought we can create create a model here that tells us what sports a customer likes to bet on, and if we display that directly to our customers, it would be fantastic, and our customers will click through on it and use it all the time. We quickly learned that wasn't the case. Um, It took a lot of work to, um, it took a lot of work to obviously productionize that model and to get it out, and we put it on our front ends, and it was a model that was running in real time and talking about something that runs offers true one-to-one personalization to customers and has to run the model in the split second between the customer clicking on the app and the app loading and the homepage displaying to them. And so really cool piece of tech that we had our tech teams working on for a long period of time, but ultimately it did nothing for our customers. I mean, the reason why after interrogating into it was because of what I was talking about before, that, that time and seasonality is just as important, if not more important than the customer's preference. It was a massive learning for us and something that we were able to then take away that helped improve as as we went further on the personalization journey, helped improve what we were doing significantly and helped us sort of go on a whole different path as to how we approach personalization. And from a personal point of view, obviously, it helped me to steer that direction, having that sort of insight. But it took, it was a pretty painful sort of experience to go through all that. But um, it goes back to my whole sort of point around, if you're not making mistakes, then you're not pushing the envelope hard enough. And so fortunate enough that the the business was able to sort of ride that out and, and stay, stick by us through that process and we've obviously come out the other end much better It was a good learning for us it was a, it was a great example of customers telling us or in this case probably not even telling us because they, they didn't really blink from having this uh, having this personalization available but it, customers telling us what they actually want and therefore being able to pivot based on that. That's
0: a great lesson. And in that case, was it about the customers wanting to have the choice and being able to browse themselves? Or was it more about the decisionality, as you mentioned? What do you think were some of the reasons behind it?
1: No, I think it was mainly the seasonality, wow. definitely around. And, and we've done this actually in testing subsequent. Where we've actually tested models which are pure customer preference models versus, versus models which are pure seasonality models in terms of have no account for customer preference, just have account for what's trending at a particular point in time. And obviously, this is more specific to our industry, but probably good taking good learnings for all industries. The seasonality only models outperform the the customer preference models in our in our regard. It's a good learning that we've been able to take away. That obviously we can get both of them combined. That's when we get the best recommendations for our customers. But we do need to take both into account. Often wondered with uh, businesses like Spotify or whatever, where music, like how seasonal is music? And. Mm. But your own sort of listening, um, listening habits in terms of there's songs that sometimes you love to hear that song and sometimes you wouldn't like to hear that song. And so I, I wonder with a company like Spotify, how they deal with this, with that seasonality, which, to be honest, the good thing in our industry is the seasonality is very um, apparent, but it's, it's quite obvious. Whereas I don't know how obvious it would be for something like music preferences or um, food preferences, etc like a um, Uber Eats example.
0: Yeah, true. Wow, that's really interesting. And in the industry, in our industry, there's this thing called the imposter syndrome, which is when people who say data scientists who know how much they don't know, In the space so they recognize that it's a big field and that it's impossible for one person to know all of it but sometimes by realizing how much you don't know that makes people feel almost like an imposter in the sense that they think of themselves you know as a proper data scientist or as a true data scientist and i know that in my career I've, i've definitely felt that in the past have you seen this through your career and what are your thoughts and perspectives on the imposter syndrome
1: I mean, obviously, from a personal point of view, I obviously um, have a lot of imposter syndrome in terms of I lead teams of people that are much smarter and much better at doing what they do in the data science space than I am. Than I am. So um, I probably face that day to day. But um, in terms of what probably concerns me when I think about data scientists is where I've seen them not have imposter syndrome. And to the point making there, I think not having imposter syndrome is almost it's actually a sign of lack of knowledge. So I'm a big believer that the more knowledge you accumulate about something, the more you realize you don't know what you don't. The more things there are that you realize that you don't know. So um, generally, the learning curve goes, the more that you know, the more reason to start to think that you don't actually have all the answers. And so I think so. I have seen this in examples of certain people, especially in the data science space, someone that is a bit more arrogant about their skills or isn't willing to actually accept that. Often it's a sign that they, there's so many other things out there that they're just not across or that they don't know. So in some regards, I would actually probably encourage people to have imposter syndrome and encourage people to actually... Face into the fact that they don't know a lot of things, especially in the data science space, because basically no one knows everything because it's such a huge, emerging, and complicated field. The more you can sort of reduce your arrogance and throw your hands up to say, "Guys, I, I don't understand this," and you can work with people, the more you will learn. Because that's what's important. So my points before around the skills that I look for in a data scientist is very much around that ambition, that self-starter, and that person that can tackle problems that they don't know. The key thing that they they need for that is learning, and so. Another way of putting that is that a data scientist's key skill they actually have is they need to have is the ability to learn. So I don't know if that squarely answers your question, but I think it may be the flip side of your question. But like I would not worry about the imposter syndrome at all. I would almost worry the opposite. Yes. So if you have it, it's a
0: good thing. <laughs> if you don't, then maybe reconsider. That's really great. Tony, this has been an absolute blast. I only have one last question for you, and that is, what is a takeaway or a parting thought that you would like to leave the listeners with, something for them to consider as they go through their career?
1: Okay, uh, put me on the spot here. The um, what's, my, what's my one word of wisdom? A lot of what I've said is spoken about this sort of need for ambition, and I, I think anyone that's in this space, I think they should realize they're in a really, really exciting and growing space. I've sort of talked about why I, I feel it's exciting, but I think one of the things I sort of didn't mention was that this is exciting because it's going to change so rapidly in the next five years. I mean, it even changes it changes in a period shorter than that. And that's exciting. I mean, it's a little bit scary, but um, overall it's exciting. And so people need to be able to embrace that change. And people, to the other points I've made, they just need to be able to learn and adapt their skills through that. I mean, ultimately we can solve some cool, some cool, awesome things. There's so many examples out there where Businesses have been able to solve uh solve fascinating problems um through the use of data science and solve some of society's biggest problems through the use of data science or advanced analytics. I mean, one one of the examples I haven't mentioned from sportsbit, which I'm probably most proud of, is a recent model that we've created that can do a very good job of identifying people who we think may have problem gambling or may have are showing signs of problems in their gambling behaviors and habits. And we can utilize that model to proactively identify issues before they become issues. Obviously very uh, proud of that from a sort of, it's a great example where we're actually able to help improve society through the use of data science. There's plenty of other examples that you can think of out out in the world around examples where flu breakouts have been able to be curtailed through the use of data science or things like the ability to handle uh, crisis situations through um, listening to something about using tweets in crisis situations in order to um, understand information and collate information a lot easier and to understand where the root problems of of things are. So there's some really awesome things that we can do and some really sort of strong, some awesome intellectual challenges at the risk of being a little bit too sort of altruistic about it and a little bit too potentially optimistic. The data scientists of tomorrow are the ones that are going to actually solve some of the world's biggest problems. That's cool to be a part of. And I think that um, anyone that's probably listening to this call or that's trying to be a data scientist or wants to make strides in this area, they should think about, they should have their ambitions being that high, that they can actually change the world with, with um, and improve the world with some of their skills. Because the ability to t- take data and turn that into something meaningful and turn that into sort of progress is a bit of a superhero skill. And so you should view your skills in that way. I could not
0: agree more. That is outstanding and a fantastic note to end on. Tony, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your, your journey, your insights, your wisdom. It's been an absolute blast and an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks so much again.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity, Felipe. Cheers.
0: That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.